And take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Would you show your appreciation to our worship team for their leadership this morning? I want to ask you a question this morning. You don't have to answer out loud, but I want you to think about it. And maybe, perhaps, um, you, you can pinpoint a moment. And so here's what I want to ask you this morning. How many of you can remember the most tired you have ever been in your life? What is the moment or the season or the time when you were the most tired you've ever been? Some of you said, well, ask me about 20 minutes and I'll let you know. That's not what I mean. All right. Hopefully I can give you a specific moment in my life when I was the most tired that I've ever been. And it was maybe even 21 years to the day. I was in my office, First Baptist Church, Ripley, Tennessee, sitting at my desk. It was February of 2003, and I looked at the desk that was an old, wooden, hard desk, and I thought to myself, that looks like the most comfortable thing I have ever seen in my life. And there at my desk, At First Baptist Church Ripley, for the first time today, I'm publicly confessing, I laid down and took a nap because I was exhausted. You see, a little less than two weeks before, the Lord had blessed us with our first child. Can I get an amen in the house from the parents? And Susan's mom had stayed with us for a week, and during that time, my job was to rest up, make sure I was ready for the day to do all that I could for that. And then she abandoned us to ourselves. And we were in charge. I don't, I mean, I had that feeling when I, we left the hospital, you know, like, do they realize they have left us in charge of this child? They, they didn't make us take tests or do anything. And I was physically, emotionally exhausted. And here's what happened over the next few weeks. I learned to sleep through the night. I I didn't say Eli learned how to sleep through the night. I learned how to sleep through the night. And there were a few days when I would wake up and I would say, man, I didn't hear him at all last night. Dad, that's not what you say. Because, you know, who had heard him throughout the night? Susan had, right. And I would say, man, I get a good night's rest and I don't even want to hear it. It was what I would get, right? Because my sensitivity, he may not have been wailing, but the noises that he would make, the turning over, the slight difference in breathing for those monitors that we had, that is the reason we now have to sleep with a sleep machine because that thing was turned up as loud as it could be so we could hear. And I would be oblivious to it. And Susan would hear every sound. I use that example because the history of the church shows that sometimes when it comes to our understanding of sin in our lives and our world and our church, we are conscious of every sound. Aware, noticing, understanding, discerning. 
And sometimes we sleep right through it. Completely unaware. A few weeks ago, we started this series about renewal. I really intended it for be it to be a three or four week series, and God has just continued to extend it. And we've talked over this time about God's desire to renew us, God's desire to revive us, about how we have a desire to do that. We want that. We want to see that happen. We even talked about the battle that comes in the midst of that. And then last week, we talked about the single element in our lives that most prevents God's moving in a downpour, God's moving in a mighty way among our lives and among our church and among our nation and world. And that is the sin that we hold on to. I had, uh, I read a quote from a pastor this week that said, the sin in our lives is like an umbrella that we hoist in the midst of God's downpour. And while all around us may be getting soaked and drenched with the blessings and the power and the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God, as long as there is that sin in our lives, we are holding the umbrella and preventing God's downpour on us. Now here's the truth. This is a universal problem. Scripture says that for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And when we don't recognize it, when we're numb to it, when we're asleep through it, we are preventing the Lord from moving in a mighty way. If we're unaware, we're sleeping while the baby is crying. And we don't get there overnight. There's a progression that happens in our lives with our personal sin, with churches in their collective sin, with the nation in its Sin tolerance. We move from that, you know what, I kind of want to do it even if it's wrong phase, to the, I want to do it even if it's going to hurt me phase, to the, I want to do it even if it's going to hurt other people phase, to, is it really wrong phase, to, you know what, let's just celebrate it and promote it phase. And in the midst of that, if we're not careful, We just slowly allow our lives to become shielded from the downpour of God in it. So what do we do? I want to make real clear before we talk again about what we started last week and then look towards this week. I want to make very clear. It is not your responsibility, it is not my responsibility ultimately to deal with your sin. Jesus has done that. I'm going to re-say that because I know we got a couple of little amens over here. But when we understand the seriousness of our sin, and I tell you it's not your responsibility to take care of it, that Jesus has done that, that's kind of a big deal, Amen. In fact, we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Spoiler alert, Easter's on the way. We're going to talk about the cross. All right? On the cross, what did Jesus declare? What was it that he shouted in the midst of that moment? It is finished. 
So it is not your responsibility to figure out how to deal ultimately with your sin. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. Jesus has already done on the cross what we could not do for ourselves. So it is not our responsibility. And I want you to hear this if you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. You've never taken that step of faith. You've never stepped across and asked Jesus to save you. Here's what I want you to understand. It is not your job to take care of your sin. It is not your job to take care of your guilt. It is not your responsibility to remove that from your life. Jesus has promised that he has already paid the price. If we will allow him to take care of it, he has. So what does that mean our responsibility is? What about those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ that have that umbrella up that is preventing us from feeling and experiencing the downpour of God in our lives? What does that mean for us? It means First of all, we have to acknowledge that sin is still a problem and specific sins that are problems in our lives. The the word confession literally at its core means to agree with. And the idea that we are confessing to God is we are looking to God and go, yeah, God, I see it. Man, like, man, I am messing up here. Yes. And I recognize that it is sin. I'm not going to excuse it. I'm not going to make any kind of argument for it, I understand that it is sin and it is sin against you. It's David when he has shown his sin in Psalm 51 and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned, Lord. There's an acknowledgement of our sin. There's an asking of God to forgive you for that sin. He has promised us the forgiveness and then it tells us that if we are, if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. And then we accept it And we allow God to change us from the inside out. Repentance that we talked about last week, the turning, is literally saying, God, this is what sin is in my life. I see it. I don't want to do that anymore. God, change me. Forgive me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we have Paul writing a letter to a group of people that he cares about deeply. And we talked about last week. There's a letter that we don't have, apparently, in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And in that letter, he said some harsh things to them. He says that and he goes, I thought about it and I regretted almost what I wrote to you because of the harshness, the tone of it. But I didn't regret it in the end because you repented. Now, there are some, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in just a minute, There are some that think that whatever it was that Paul wrote the letter about, whatever necessitated a bitter letter, was directed at him. That someone or some people had questioned Paul's leadership, had started a rumor about Paul, had assumed false narratives about Paul, had placed false motives upon Paul. Now, I'm glad that nobody ever does that with uh, leaders and pastors today. But somebody had done that in the Corinthian church is what a lot of scholars believe. And so Paul wrote a letter to defend himself and did so in the strongest way possible is what some believe. Regardless, it's a letter that Paul says, I was serious about what was happening and I was specific about it and I almost regretted it. But then it brought you to repentance. And we talked last week about what repentance really looks like. And this week, what I want to do is, so how do we know if we truly have? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 
8. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I did regret it, since I saw the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Verse 11. For consider how much diligence this very thing, the grieving as God wills, has produced in you. And here's the results of their repentance. What a desire to clear yourself. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice in every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So what he shows us here, and we're going to break this down because just reading that doesn't necessarily give us all of the answers that we're looking for. It's not blatantly obvious there, but there are three things that we see in this passage that are the results of true repentance. Because part of what Paul's doing here in verses 8 through 11 is saying, what I'm glad about is not that you were upset. I, I'm not, I, I didn't want to make you upset. Uh, especially I didn't want to make you upset with a worldly grief. Because if you're just sad about things for a day or two and it doesn't lead to ultimate change, that's no good. What I'm okay with and what I'm excited about is that in your grief, in your sadness, and we'll talk about that word specifically in just a second, whatever it was that dwelled up inside of you, that it led you to the Lord. And because of that, he has changed your lives. One of the things that I hope that as believers we have not lost sight of is that in our own lives, and specifically with the way that we talk to other people and to the culture around us, our goal is not just to condemn for the sake of condemnation. Our goal is to reveal what upsets the Lord so that people's lives can ultimately be changed by him. And I feel like in today's culture sometimes we're more concerned about winning an argument than seeing people come to faith in Jesus. And what Paul is saying here is, yeah, I said harsh things, but what I'm excited about is that it brought you to the Lord. And I, you can almost have, see Paul having um, cinder's regret. You ever had that with an email or a text message? Like you look over it for 20 minutes and then you finally, you hit that send button. You're like, okay, can I unsend? How do I get that back? Or if you're not technology driven, you ever had that with the words that come out of your own mouth? I think Paul for a moment thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, that was too much. Like, shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have put it that way. And then he hears the reports and he's like, no, that's what God intended. So what does it look like? If true repentance comes into our lives, how does it impact our lives? Three things. First of all, we develop a repulsion over sin. A repulsion over sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-11, through 11, the word grief is used. And in the whole book of 2 Corinthians, but particularly in this little passage, it's used more in this passage than anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, over a third of the uses of the word grief 
found in the New Testament are found in 2 Corinthians, and half of them are found in these few verses. And here's what's important to understand. When, when you hear the word grief there, most of us think of the word grief, we think of crying or sobbing or sadness. Most, most in our society, most in our culture, we associate the word grief with death. And there was some of that in this language, but that's not what is intended here. What's intended here and what the word means here is a deep, guttural disgust. Either something that makes you sick or something that sours the inside. You might hear ever tried to feed a child something they don't want to eat. And have seen what we call the gag reflex. Can I get an amen here? Anybody seen that? I just need support group right now. You, you know, you, you put the, the spoon and it starts to come back, right? A little puke in the mouth moment, right? You're like, Pastor, that's enough. Let's go. Move on. Anybody here ever eaten something that caused that immediate reflex in you? Maybe you got a hold of something that had soured or was out of date and you did not know that it was and you just confidently went in. An example I've used again and again here because it's just, it's, it's life lived. There are memories that are seared into your brain. Is that moment that you pull the sippy cup out of the back of the minivan and you think that it's water and it's milk and you open and Sorry for those of you that are having PTSD right now, right? You know what I'm talking about, just complete revulsion. Here's the thing. When you truly repent, you begin to see your sin first and sin in general the way that God sees it. And it is revolting. When I was in seminary, uh, I took a class on Joshua. And the time came when the teacher of the class on Joshua was going to assign papers to be written out of the book of Joshua. And everybody wanted two or three passages in Joshua. Be strong and courageous. That transfer of leadership, that's what you want. The battle of Jericho, that's what you want. Or the, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Give me that one. I didn't get any of them. We put in our top choices, and apparently everybody had the same top choices, because I don't know if he went from the front, you know, from A to Z, or he went from Z to A. Teachers did it different ways to assign. Regardless, L's right in the middle, and they were all taken. I got the battle of AI. Can I get an amen in the house of... He might, he might here know about the Battle of Ai. Let me see. All right, we got three. Okay. It's the battle after Jericho. Yeah, and there are songs written about Jericho. I went to my daughter's sixth grade chorus concert this past Tuesday night. They sang about the Battle of Jericho. Nobody has ever sung about the Battle of Ai. Here's what happened at the Battle of Ai. Jericho happens. They come to Joshua and say, hey, the next place on the list, because this is part of the conquest of the Holy Land, the Promised Land. Hey, by the way, hey, here's the next place on the list. It's AI. Man, it ain't nothing compared to Jericho. 
We don't even need the whole battalion. Just, just send a couple out. Just send a couple out there. No, we ain't got to worry about it. Do you see what God just did to Jericho? Man, we got this. And they go. And they get destroyed. And they come back. And Joshua's like, goes to the Lord's like, Lord, what in the world has happened? What has happened to our people? God, and he is crying out. And God finally says, get up. Because remember what I told you not to do in Jericho? I told you to walk through Jericho when those walls came down and not to pick up anything. Somebody has sinned against me and you lost because of that sin. And so the next day they call everybody out. And they start narrowing it down by tribe and family and father. And they get to a guy named Achan. And Achan says, sorry, sorry, man. Like, we were walking through and there was this bar of gold on the ground. It's like a pound and a half. I couldn't resist. So I picked it and stuck it into my stuff and I buried it in my tent when we got back home. Now, in our day, most of the time we would say, oh, man, that's all right. Good for you. Thanks for letting us know. I mean, it took all of us doing this for like hours to figure out who it was. But once we found you, thanks for letting us know. Good for you. What what why it'd be okay. Let's just move on. Just bring the stuff back and it'll be all right. That's not what happened. They said, What do we need to do to the Lord? And the Lord said, His sin is odorous. It is repugnant. It is repulsive to me. And they took Achan and the gold and the silver and all of his stuff and all of his livestock, his entire family, and they put them in a place and they stoned them to death. That's what I got to write a paper on. And these were my conclusions about sin. Sin is repulsive because it harms the entire people of God, whether we know it or not. It is repulsive because it forfeits the blessing and the presence of God in our lives. It is repulsive because it brings dishonor to the glory of God. It is repulsive and warrants the swift and just wrath of God. And most of us do not see sin with that seriousness or that level of repulsion. We like to play around with it like it's our pet. You ever seen one of those stories about somebody that has a pet that turns on them? I, I thought this week, hey man, I think there was a story I remember about somebody's pet turning on them and mauling them and, and severely injuring them. And I started to do a Google search. And I didn't need to get to the story because when you start to, you know how Google autofills? This is what my auto filled to. I just typed in mall by pet. And then I saw mall by pet chimpanzee, mauled by pet hippo, mauled by pet chimp, by pet monkey, by pet rottweilers, and by pet lion. A couple of things real quick. Don't get a monkey. Amen? Like, like don't get a monkey. Second thing is, who has a pet hippo or lion? 
and thinks it's a good idea. If it can take you, it ain't your pet. That's why I have a five pound, more like nine, a little overweight, pound dog right now. Right? If it can take you, it's not your pet. Sin is not your pet. Because it can take you. And when we truly repent before the Lord, we begin to be repulsed by our own sin. Because we know, as Adrian Rogers once said, if we don't, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you can afford. There's a second part of this, by the way. We're repulsed by our sins so much that we're willing, and this is a big deal, all right? Shows true repentance. We're willing to accept the consequences of our sin. We don't try to talk our way out of it. Because we understand how serious it is. You want to know the first clue in your life whether you have truly repented or not? Do you have a repulsion Does sin cause a gag reflex in your life? Second thing. Not only will there be a repulsion of sin, you'll see a restitution with others. Now in this passage, this is one of those that's kind of hidden down in here a little bit. But but it says in here that has pronounced in you a desire to clear yourselves or an eagerness to see everything made okay. When you look at those original words, in fact, the word for eagerness in there that is translated in different ways in different Bibles is the word from which we get apologetics from. It's that you want everything to be cleared in your name, including what we can see from this passage and understand the personal relations you have within and without the church. You desire restitution there. And true repentance will have you not Caring about the blame that others may carry for an incident, but only being willing and able to say, I am willing to make restitution for what I have done. There becomes a desire within you not to allow walls to stay between you and fellow believers, to allow walls to stay between you and those you love. You want those broken down and restitution to happen. And that may mean even you providing something to them. The most clear example of this in the New Testament for me is Zacchaeus, right? Who comes down from the tree, follows Jesus, eats dinner, and then comes out and is going to pay back everybody multiples of what he owed them. But it also means for us, maybe you don't owe people, maybe you don't owe people tons of money, but it includes in us a forgiving heart and spirit. One of the most penetrating parables in my life has always been the one where the guy goes to his master to whom he owes millions of dollars and says, I can't pay it. And the master says, that's fine. You're forgiven. And that same man goes to a man that owes him a few dollars and throws him in prison because he won't pay it. Jesus says that we have been forgiven so much by our Father. How in the world can we withhold forgiveness from others? When you've truly repented, you begin 
to attempt restitution. You can't change other people's lives, but you can follow what God calls you in your own. It means we forgive quickly. We show mercy. We show grace. We assume the best. We give the benefit of the doubt. We love more. We develop a new care for people, even if they wronged us. And then finally, not only a revulsion of sin, a restitution with others, but a rekindling of all. Look there in verse 11. It says, what a desire to clear yourselves. That's with other people. What indignation. That's how you feel about sin. And then it says, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal. Those three words together describe a new understanding and following of Jesus. The word fear there could be better translated as awe. You are in awe of what he has done in forgiving you. You are in awe of what he has done in his mercy and grace towards you. You are in awe of how powerful and wonderful and awesome and loving and caring and holy he is. You stand in complete amazement of the God we serve. What awe is in my life? After all, Proverbs does say, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? But it's not just awe. What deep longing. That's a desire. That is, I want, at the deepest part of who I am. After we have repented, we come to a new desire to see, to know, to experience the Lord. True repentance shows itself in a new commitment, in a new following, in a new passion for Him. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of Your truth, we wait for You, for Your name and Your renown are the desire of our souls. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after You. Better is one day in Your house than a thousand days elsewhere. Lord, all I want is to know you forgetting what is ahead pressing on what is ahead i want to know the lord and then it says what zeal zeal there means is just unabated passion to see something happen jesus several of their his followers were called zealous because of a political Framework. They were trying to overthrow the Roman government. I'll tell you that in our day and time, political zealots is more common than it used to be. And the question is not, are you zealous for something? The question is, what is it in your life you're zealous for? And if it's not the Lord, then you need to check your relationship with Him. We got all kinds of things that are screaming for our attention And yet when repentance happens, we become revulsed by the things that make God sick. We we begin to restore the relationships of those around us. And there is a resurgence in our lives of zeal and desire and want and awe. And I don't know about you, church. But man, I want the Lord to move. And I want to bring down the umbrella of sin in my life that's preventing it from happening here and now. I'll show you a picture as we close. This is a guy named Evan Roberts. He uh, was a young guy in Wales. This picture was taken in 
1905, he would have been 26 years old. And at 26, he had been praying for a decade for the Lord to move in his homeland and to bring revival. One night while he was at church, he heard a deacon praying and he realized that there was a hardness in his heart. And all the deacon prayed was, Lord, bend us. And what he meant by that was, bring us to our knees, bend us to the ground. And Evan Roberts went home and began to pray, Lord, bend me, bend me, whatever it takes, bend me. He was preaching in a local church and had a service on October 31st, 1904, commonly known as All Hallows Eve, Reformation Day. Or Halloween if you're pagan. No, that night, he gave a four-point sermon. And these were his four points, and they won't fit on cute graphics that you put up on a screen, but I'm going to put them up for you. I'm not going to give you the whole sermon, just the four points. Point number one, is there any sin in your past that you have not confessed? On your knees at once, your past must be put away and yourself cleansed. Point number two, is there anything in your life that is doubtful? Anything you cannot decide is good or evil, away with it. There must not be a cloud between you and God. Third point, do what the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Obey promptly, implicitly, and with unquestioning submission to God's Spirit. Point number four, publicly profess Christ as Savior. That was it. He preached it, and then he called for a response. His prayer became, Lord, I'm asking you to bend the church and save the world. It's recorded that part of what happened is that things started to change significantly in Wales, where he was. Taverns in town closed down. Gambling businesses lost their trade. Brothels locked their doors. Families were united. Friendships reconciled. Profanity ceased. Old debts were paid. Goods that had been stolen were returned. And perhaps the most miraculous thing at all is church divisions were healed. And on the first night that he preached that, on that October 31st night, 16 young people gave their lives to Jesus. They decided to go a second night because the Lord was moving and seven people gave their lives to Jesus. They went a third night and 20 people gave their lives to Jesus. So November 2nd, by November 2nd, with this fledgling revival starting, they had, by my count, 43 people had come to Jesus. By the middle of December, right up until Christmas, 70,000 people. People had given their lives to Jesus. By March, 85,000 people. And by the time the Welsh revival was done, 100,000 people. There was a song written during 1905 that just said over and over again, Bend me lower, lower down at Jesus' feet. Evan Roberts being used by God, saw an entire generation changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it started with four questions. Let's pray together. As you've got your head bowed, as we are moving into this time of response, I'm going to ask you those four questions or give you those four commands. It's a combination of the two. And where you are by yourself in this moment, I just want you to answer these or to commit to these in your own heart. Question number one. Is there any sin in your past that you have not confessed to God? If so, immediately confess it. Put your past away and allow yourself to be cleansed. Second question. Is there anything in your life that is doubtful? Anything you question or cannot decide if it is good or evil? Then do away with it. Because there must not be a cloud between you and God. Third point. Do whatever the Holy Spirit prompts you to do. Obey promptly, implicitly, and with an unquestioning submission to God's Spirit. Fourthly, publicly profess Christ as Savior. Here's what's going to happen in just a moment. I'm going to pray. And we're going to, Van's going to lead us in a song. And you may not need to sing, be able to sing, want to sing. And that's okay. Maybe your declaration of the Lord is this song. It's a description of that what we need is more of you, Jesus. And if that means less of me, then all be it. Get rid of me, Lord. I want more of you. Perhaps you're here today and there was something in your life, there was a sin in your past that you need to confess and you need to get on your knees where you are or up here at the front and you need to do that at once. Or there's something in your life that you've been questioning whether it's good or bad or whether you need to give it up or not and and the Lord's just saying give it up because you don't need that cloud, you don't need that distinct, just give it up. Maybe the Holy Spirit's calling you to do something, to restore a relationship, to, to, to bring restitution to somebody, to begin to bridge a gap that is there in your life with your family, with your friends, in this church. And the Lord's saying, do something, obey it promptly, implicitly, with complete submission, not worrying about the consequences of what that means. You are trusting the Lord and moving in faith. And for some of you in this room, For the first time, you need to publicly profess Jesus Christ as Savior. You've been to church. You know all the answers. You can give you the course on it, but you don't have Jesus as your Savior. And this morning is the time to do that. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. When I finish praying, I'll be down front. Noah will be down front. We'd love to have a conversation with you. This front is open for you to come and pray and confess and to pour out your heart to the Lord. Whatever it is that He's calling you to do, I'm asking you to do it. Dear Jesus, in this moment and in this place, we want you to have free reign. Get us out of the way. Get our pride and our worry, and our concern, and our schedules out of the way, Lord. And you move in power and in strength and change lives here. 
because you alone are worthy and able. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.